Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are broadcasting on the Big Talker 1067 FM at Wilmington, North Carolina in the morning every Saturday at 10 a.m. I am Yael Ososki broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location in the mountains and the forest and fields of Austria. And I'm joined as always by my great colleague and radio co-host who is over there in Ontario, Mr. David Clement. David, sir, how goes it? Uh, it's it's going. I am not uh, in as um, illustrious of a location as you are, unfortunately. I am still at home, uh, indoors, um, doing what seems to be like what we do every day is <laughs> enjoy the most of what you can inside your own home and uh, maybe get out to walk the dog a couple times a day. So a um, little bit jealous of where you are. You have to explain to to listeners um, where exactly you are and what that surrounding looks like so you can uh, so they can be as jealous as I am in terms of <laughs> your location versus theirs. Well, I'm not going to make myself a, a target, um, but I will say... <laughs> But I will say that I am currently uh, in the countryside of Austria. Uh, we basically have found a refuge at my in-laws that is very, very far from the city. There's a lot of forest, a lot of open air, a nice breeze. It's a tad cooler than it is in Vienna. But finally, there's nature and there are animals and things that I have not seen in a long time. And it, I was able to rub my eyes a little bit once I came out here. Uh, it really changes, and uh, the first night, best sleep I've gotten in probably two months. So, thank you, fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, so we're feeling good. I know a lot of people are locked down, and, um, you know, it's uh, it's very tough, and a lot of people are rising up. A lot of people are protesting. We'll get into that uh, later in the program. Mm -hmm. um, you can, of course, follow all the show notes and things we've been talking about on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Be sure you're subscribing to the podcasts as well. After they go up, we did some experimentation last week with the live stream, figuring out how that would work. We'll see what happens in doing yep. that in the future. Um, anything's on the table. And uh, continue to listen to us and not just here on the radio station, but also in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your program. Um, so David is yep. um, is going to tee up a, something very nice for us. It seems as if we've got a heavy hitter interview right off the bat. So David, we'll, uh, we'll hand you the microphone and you take it away. Tell us what we've got in store for the listeners. Yeah, very exciting to uh, announce our guest for this week's episode, who is Jerry Buting. Uh, and for anyone who has watched uh, Making a Murderer on Netflix, Jerry Buting was... Um, Stephen Avery's uh, defense attorney in his original trial. Um, so a great interview coming your way. Um, just a great legal mind, someone who uh, has a lot to say about the criminal justice system as it is, exists now, the use of experts, and I use experts in air quotes, um, in criminal trials, um, and just an all-around great guy and friend of the show. So uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll pivot to that right now, and we'll tee up that interview. All right. 
I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, welcoming our guest for this week's show. Uh, his name is Jerry Buting. He is a he was the criminal defense attorney for Stephen Avery in Making a Murderer. He is the author of The Illusion of Justice. Uh, he is a co-founder of the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences. Um, most of you will have seen his face uh, before if you have dipped into any of the uh, crime documentaries on Netflix. Uh, Jerry, thank you very much for joining Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. So, I mean, first off, Making a Murderer, I think it would probably be an understatement to say that um, it had a it was tremendously popular. How did that impact uh, your life? What's changed for you since that documentary came out and since the Stephen Avery, since the, the Avery case? Well, you know, it's interesting. It had a phenomenal impact uh, on criminal justice and, and the whole uh, conversation about criminal justice reform. And, uh, you know, my life has changed in other ways, uh, in some ways, not so much. So I am still a practicing criminal defense lawyer. I uh, do mostly, um, well, it's about 50-50 appeals and trials. And, um, but I'm also, um, also, I wrote a book and I've been, uh, you know, had the opportunity to travel really all over the world and, and speak to audiences about um, the issues that were raised in Making a Murderer and that I talk about in my book, which are the flaws of criminal justice, not just American criminal justice, but really um, most criminal justice systems around the world. And that's been a real privilege um, for me to be able to do and I've enjoyed that very much. So of course, in, in this uh, shelter in place time during the, the pandemic, uh, I'm not doing any of that, but it um, Zoom meetings and like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. So in that transition, kind of as the documentary picked up steam, was it weird for you to start to get noticed in public? I can only assume that all of a sudden people would recognize you immediately or maybe even approach you for pictures or autographs. Uh, was that kind of like a new phenomenon that hit you? Did it take you by surprise? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, it, it, uh, it was very weird uh, to be, you know, hailed walking down the street, Jerry, you know, come, come over and want to do pics or um, just even talk about the, the, the series was, was really a, you know, incredible phenomenon. Now, thankfully, that has has finally worn off. I can walk most places without being recognized. I do still, uh, funny enough, in, in airports often is where people will approach me and say, "Are you that lawyer that was on Making a Murder?" But um, so you know, that was a that was a sort of a lot of awkward moments at the beginning. But then everybody was good natured about it, and so we. Both Dean and I, we, we Dean Strang, my colleague in the in the documentary in the case, um, we both had to deal with that kind of uh, phenomena. But um, we bo we both found that people were very generous and interested in carrying on the conversation, and that's why we both together and individually continued to do uh, public speaking. And so let's I, yeah oh yeah yeah I'll, you, let, I'll let you take it from here. Very good. Um, so. I wanted to dive into a lot of the reform work that uh, you've been involved with. Um, this has been very interesting um, from the point of view of our organization, Consumer Choice Center, uh, just because I believe we're interested in many of the same topics. 
Um, so we're talking about the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences. And you've been thinking and talking a lot about the evidence that's presented at trial, how things are brought there, um, who's able to be an expert, um, how testimony is allowed into court. You know, if you could just tell us the the kind of origin story of this this organization, what inspired you to do this, and and sort of um, sure. maybe any successes you have or uh, things that you like to accomplish in the future. Sure. So, uh, really, after the exoneration cases started piling up, uh, mostly from DNA exonerations in the '90s and into the 2000s, people began to study those cases and see, well, what went wrong? Why were people wrongly convicted in those cases? And um, what they discovered is there's a lot of different causes, but approximately half of the, the exoneration cases that the Innocence Project in New York dealt with um, had as a, a major component, if not the most important part of the evidence in the case, was flawed or just simply wrong forensic science, forensic evidence. And um, what, we, what the studies have shown is that, you know, we are a largely illiterate science um, population in America. I mean, you know, we are, lawyers are, judges are, jurors are. And so when people would come into court with, uh, purported expertise in some kind of forensic discipline, forensic science discipline, um, they were typically deferred to by both the jurors, the judges, uh, and the lawyers. Defense lawyers often didn't challenge certain types of evidence because they, they thought it was um, unchallengeable, basically. And we have since found, though, that many of those types of evidence that many of the type of forensic evidence that are presented in court um, are really junk science. And that would be true in criminal cases as well as civil cases, although probably more prominent in criminal cases because the uh, attorneys on both sides really don't have as much time and um, to sort of develop their own piece in a particular discipline. So um, after Making a Murder came out and we, we saw that there was much more of a public interest in uh, reform of the criminal justice system, uh, my colleague Dean Strang and I and uh, Professor Keith Findlay at the University of Wisconsin Law School, um, who was also the founder of the Wisconsin Innocence Project, decided to form a nonprofit, the Center for Integrity in Forensics Sciences, um, which is the only nonprofit in the country that is dedicated solely to improving reliability of forensic evidence in our courts. And, um, you know, the public who watches shows like CSI or NCIC has a misperception that, that science can prove definitively guilt or innocence in almost every case, that there's this little bit of evidence or all you gotta do is turn on the blue light and you'll, you'll find this little scrap of trace of evidence that's going to prove one way or the other uh, whether the person is guilty. And um, it's, it's just not true. It is just absolutely not true. And uh, you know, so probably two of the, the most obvious ways in which that uh, uh, flawed evidence has come in has been through bite mark identification and microscopic hair comparison analysis. We'll just look at the latter real quickly. So the FBI, to their credit, 
about three or four years ago, decided to go back and do a study, a random study of about 268 of cases, that, cases in which their experts testified. And they went back to look at the transcripts to see how their experts testified. And they found shockingly that about 95% of the time, their experts presented um, flawed or overstated conclusions that just weren't borne out by the science. And, um, you know, nine, and those are the FBI analysts that you would think would be the best and the brightest. And yet there are uh, somewhere in the order of 90 to 95% of the criminal cases that are prosecuted in this country are done by state level um, prosecutors and state level crime labs, most of whom were trained by the FBI in this microscopic hair comparison analysis. And what we found time after time after time, when the experts would come into court and they would pull one uh, you know, hair from the suspect's head and compare it to a hair that is at the crime scene under a double field microscope, and they would, they would make uh, an opinion about whether or not the, they're not supposed to do this, but often whether or not there is a match. Um, later, DNA tests on those hairs proved the exact opposite, it excluded the defendants when in fact the, the microscopic hair comparison testimony had included them. So, um, so in 2009, the National Academy of Science issued a really groundbreaking study of all of the forensic science disciplines in use in America at that time. And they came out with a lot of recommendations and ultimately they concluded that none of the forensic disciplines with the exception of DNA had ever been scientifically validated where you can, you can demonstrate uh, you know, an error rate and reliability and um, replicable test results. It had never, none of these disciplines, including fingerprints, including ballistics, all the things that people think are conclusive, none of it had ever been subjected to a rigorous science validity test and or process. And so um, they made a lot of recommendations, but all of these individual disciplines, the, the uh, fingerprint people, the tool mark people, um, the blood spatter, you know, all of these different disciplines have their own little organizational bodies. And, not, and with the exception of fingerprints, almost none of them have done much in the way of going back to follow those recommendations, even 10 years later. And so we decided that, and one of the reasons that they haven't, frankly, is because of political difficulties that they had. Um, most of, in fact, nearly all crime labs are organized under the uh, justice departments of their states. So they're either within a law enforcement agency, a police lab, or they are under the Department of Justice for the state of Wisconsin or state of North Carolina. Um, BCI, I think it is, in North Carolina. And so um, th there's an inherent conflict in that these lab scientists are not truly independent, even though they come into court and testify as if they are. So we decided that it would be not a, a good idea to come up with an independent body funded by non-political um, sources, generally, that, uh, that could go where science takes us, um, whether it helps the prosecution or whether it hurts the, uh, the prosecution, helps the defense. Um, we would try and do what we can to um, 
get these disciplines examined to see if they they warranted any kind of use in court as being a scientifically valid and reliable piece of evidence. And so the first thing we've done, we've done is we've got a, um, uh, one of the first classes, if not the first class in the country, where we actually have law students in a clinic together with graduate students in the biosciences. They're studying together. Um, they're learning forensic evidence together. You know, one of the things that, that always strikes me is lacking in, in most law schools. We have a whole year long course, typically on evidence, hearsay rule and those sorts of things, but very little education about what forensic evidence is, how it's admissible, how you challenge it, when you should challenge it. And, and so um, what we're trying to do is implement that at the, at the very beginning of people's careers so as they become lawyers, as they become forensic scientists, they, they have a better grounding in, in what's the right way and what's not the right way to introduce this evidence in court. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, obviously that's extremely important for them as advocates to have a better understanding. Kind of on that note, uh, what are some of the more egregious examples that have been passed off in your eyes um, as science or forensic evidence? I know you've mentioned things like bite marks or hair comparison samples. How far astray have we gone in terms of what has been at least brought forward or even maybe in some cases led to a conviction of someone that was, in your view, totally bogus? Well, you know, it, it goes a lot of different ways. So, um, and it's continually evolving. So um, there's things like tool mark evidence. So a lot of people would, you know, they, they think that you can always conclusively determine if a bullet or a shell came from, you know, this particular gun, say the defendant's gun and no other gun in the world. Um, they use that kind of testimony in the Stephen Avery case, as a matter of fact, even though the the rifle that they they claimed this the one bullet that was uh, that was at issue came from was the most popular 22 rifle produced in the world millions and millions of them and the problem is that the so-called science of that of those opinions were based many many years ago with they were more valid than they are today it used to be that that uh, barrels were hand bored and that they had these sort of unique individual microscopic striations inside the barrels that then would be transferred to a bullet that's spiraling out of it when it's propelled out. Um, but for decades, firearms have been mass produced to precision so that they are all exactly alike if you have the same class gun. Uh, now with wear and tear, they will uh, develop a some unique characteristics, but so few um, that it is really misleading for experts to come into court and say, this bullet came from that gun and no other gun in the world. And then when you ask them, well, okay, well, what's your error rate? Uh, it's a common term that scientists understand. They say, we have no error rate. Well, not, nothing has no error rate. Um, and yet that, that's what you often see. Now, it's, it's being applied now. Let's, let's move forward a little bit. Um, more recently, some experts have tried to say that they can determine a trash bag that was found, let's say, at the, at the scene of a crime, and that they can compare that 
and state that it came from the same lot, the same time off of the, the um, uh, yeah, you know, out of the, the manufacturer's plant as trash bags found in the defendant's house. Um, when these things are mass produced and do not have any of those kinds of unique characteristics. Um, the Casey Anthony case in Florida, um, which was an acquittal, but they went so far as to have an expert say that he could somehow determine the fumes of a corpse in a trunk months after the, the body was supposedly in the trunk. And, you know, they come into court with a straight face and they try and sell this stuff. Now, um, when I say it's constantly evolving, now we have digital uh, forensic evidence that is becoming, it's very sophisticated. And they, you know, it, it started maybe with cell tower triangulations and, um, uh, you know, overstating what they could do, that they could pinpoint a phone within 10 meters or something like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's a constantly evolving issue as you know science is not going away from the courts science is increasing in every case in civil cases in criminal cases and we just have to do a better job of making sure it's reliable before it's presented to a jury in particular but also to judges you're listening to consumer choice radio on the big talker 1067 fm we're speaking with jerry buting uh, one question i wanted to bring up is essentially how science has kind of changed the relationship between judges uh, and attorneys you, you know you mentioned that before uh, before you know judges are seen as the umpire you know they're there the referee to make sure just the rules are follow and at times will uh, provide direction to the jury or in in some cases will provide the final judgment has the kind of growth of the industry of uh, some of these science experts or expert witnesses, has that kind of changed the dynamic uh, in the courtroom? Has it sort of shifted power away from judge and jury or what does that dynamic look like? Well, it's a good question. You know, it, it has, I think, changed the dynamics in the courtroom quite a bit and not really in the way that the Supreme Court anticipated when they they last grappled with the, the issue, which was in the Daubert case, um, where, where they tried to make the judges be gatekeepers of forensic evidence that um, and therefore screen out the, the type of evidence that's too unreliable to even present to a jury. Problem is that um, there really is not a lot of good training for judges who used to be lawyers. And frankly, a lot of guys go to law school because we're not good in math and science. <laughs> and, you know, we're more vo verbally directed and um, scientifically hampered. And so um, there is one organization that's, uh, I believe has its office now based in North Carolina, the National Center for State Courts um, that is, starting to train judges in science more so that they can understand what it is they're really having to rule on. Um, and there's, you know, there's soft sciences too, like psychological sciences, which become very important in, in death penalty cases, for instance, where we're trying to, they're trying to go back and analyze um, what kind of um, 
harm uh, the, the defendant experienced as a child and his upbringing. Um, and they're now starting to use functional MRIs um, to determine whether there is actual brain damage, organic brain damage that might mitigate somebody's conduct and perhaps you know, warrant a sentence less harsh than the, a death penalty. Um, and, and judges you know, have to try and analyze all of this when they, when they don't have a whole lot of training. So it's a real challenge for them. And I think by default, what happens is they, uh, they often try and rely on precedent. I mean, that's, that's the, I think the biggest flaw in this whole debate is that the law is always looking backwards to precedent, whereas science is always evolving and moving forward. So, you know, something that might have been a valid scientific uh, premise at one point is later disproven, it's discarded, they move on and they adapt. But when one case 40 years ago rules that bite mark evidence is reliable, um, even though the vast majority of scientists now say otherwise, the courts continue to rely on that past precedent to allow it to be used in courts today. And I, I would just direct your listeners to um, a, a, a new Netflix series called The Innocence Files that is, is on right now, very popular. And one of, uh, it, it deals with about maybe five or six cases from the Innocence Project in New York and other state innocence projects where um, these gentlemen were all wrongly accused, some wrongly convicted, some of them on death row. And the first couple episodes are really interesting because they focus right on bite mark evidence and in particular um, explaining the history of it and how it evolved from uh, the Ted Bundy case where it was very important evidence um, and then made these forensic odontologists uh, almost you know, you know superstar celebrities when they would come into court. Um, so it, it, that's a very interesting series that, that people can learn a lot about some of the, particularly the first few episodes talk about flaws in forensic science. And, and on that note of the Innocence Project and um, innocent people, uh, as I would put it, um, in terms of Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey, uh, I know, obviously, I watched the, the documentary. Uh, I followed it very closely. I've somewhat followed it in the aftermath. What is your take on the future for Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey, and I say that with my own biases because I certainly fall into the camp uh, of those who who think that they were wrongly uh, convicted. Um, but where do you see their cases going? Do you think there's any hope for either of them? And I know that they can be treated and are treated in some instances as separate cases. So if you could just walk our listeners through what that looks like for them, I know that would be uh, greatly appreciated. Sure, uh, there, I do have hope for both of them, although. Um, you know, their cases are different. They're in, in different stages right now. And um, people are very frustrated. Of course, the, the, uh, the COVID uh, crisis has slowed down the courts, including the appellate courts right now. And that's, that's been dis disappointing to a lot of people. But um, one of the other things that you learn as you look at these exoneration cases is that the length of time it takes for the innocent person even with a, a good lawyer, to have their conviction reversed is shockingly long. 
people spend decades in prison. Um, they litigate cases forever. I talk about one of the cases in my book, um, the case of Ralph Armstrong uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, uh, one of the more liberal, you know, progressive court systems in the state. Um, he spent 29 years in custody, wrongly convicted before we got him out and got the case dismissed. I was representing him on appeal for 15 of those 29 years. It took me that long, almost entire time pro bono. Um, and it's because the, the system is designed to ensure the finality of judgments, even in the face of innocence. So it's been difficult for, for Stephen Avery and Brendan. Stephen's case is still pending in the Court of Appeals. Uh, the state's brief is due in a, about a month. And there's a whole host of issues that are raised there, some of which are presented in the second season of Making a Murderer, but some of which came up even after the filming ended um, that, that involved you know, potential Brady material, you know, evidence that was withheld by the state and the destruction of excul potentially exculpatory evidence. And so a lot of that's wrapped up in, in the Court of Appeals, um, but ultimately the decision from the Court of Appeals, if he wins, will probably just be that he gets sent back to have an actual evidentiary hearing. Not like he would be freed, because the, the primary issues are that, that the, uh, the court trial court denied even a hearing at which the state could challenge their, um, at which the state could challenge the defense um, experts and the defense witnesses, and the defense could present them as well to determine whether it warrants a new trial. So, um, at any rate, I think that there's a, a, a very good chance that the case will be sent back for a hearing, and then, of course, um, we'll have to wait and see how the, the witnesses stack up. Brendan's case is in a different posture because. He proceeded all the way through federal court when, when Stephen did not, and he was in a federal habeas status when Making a Murderer season two was uh, filmed, and he, he won at two levels of federal court, but then ultimately lost on a four to three decision in the Seventh Circuit uh, based in Chicago, and then the United States Supreme Court, much to the disappointment of juvenile justice ad reform advocates everywhere, decided not to hear the case. And um, I think that Brendan's case probably troubles more viewers than anything else um, when they watch Making a Murderer because the techniques that were used to interrogate him, uh, a 16 year old boy with mental challenges, limitations, um, everybody was really shocked about. Uh, unfortunately, that mm -hmm. happens. It happens all the time. Yeah. So he asked for a petition for, for clemency from the governor it was denied, but efforts are ongoing for that. If that fails, um, he does still have some other remedies um, and we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, that was one of the things I remember watching and sitting there, obviously Stephen's case is tragic, but then there's that extra layer of, um, of just what feels like a great miscarriage of justice when you look at Brennan's case as well, because like you said, um, his limitations or however you frame it, the line of questioning, the, from my view, the fact that he's 
confessing to a crime that there really isn't evidence took place right. other than the final end of uh, right. what was a, a obviously a tragic tragic death. Um, so thank you very much for your insights uh, on that. I know our listeners are, are going to love hearing uh, your take on the case and the, the great work that you've been doing um, with this new organization and your kind of ongoing efforts as an advocate. Um, so at, before we wrap up, is there anything or, or anywhere that our listeners should um, look at, whether that's Twitter or any organizations that they should follow if they care about this issue and want to learn more about what you're doing in this space? Sure, they can follow me on Twitter at, at uh, jbuting, B-U-T-I-N-G. Uh, but also they can, they can find out a whole lot more about the whole idea of forensic science and flawed forensic science in court if they go to the website of this organization I mentioned, Center for Integrity and Forensic Science, cifsjustice.org. Um, there's a whole host of information on there that uh and links to other resources that they can follow great great uh well thank you again jerry for joining the show uh we hope to have you back uh at some point in the future and we hope that you uh stay safe in in quarantine for now and uh, we'll talk to you soon thank you you too it's very good chatting great thank you cheers thank you jerry And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Uh, you just heard a great interview we conducted with Jerry Buting, um, now a very renowned lawyer who's um, discussed a lot of the, the main issues behind the Making a Murderer series and that trial and, and many other issues in the criminal and civil justice system in the United States. Uh, some pretty good insight. I mean, you don't get to, to talk to a person like that every day, and certainly um, you don't get to talk to people who are Netflix famous. Davis. Yes. I think that's pretty damn cool. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, great interview. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, as we always say, if you have any other guests that you think we should have on the show, people you would like to hear from, um, don't hesitate to reach out to us, tweet at us, email us, and uh, we'll do our best to uh, to get those suggestions on the show and See what they have to say. Definitely. And you can, we always have the email set up, hello at consumerchoiceradio.com, so you can find us there. Um, I think, you know, we've been getting some good feedback. Um, if you've been listening in the podcast apps, be sure to also rate us and be sure we, we can climb the charts. Okay, David, I've got a couple clips I want to throw your way. There's a, a lot of stuff that we've discussed and talked about, but there's, um, man, there's some stuff that's really been getting my goat in here the last couple of weeks. <laughs> stuff that's been grinding your gears. It's been grinding my gears. Yeah, let's use uh, all those that we can. So there's a lot of protests uh, that are happening across the United States because yep. people are, in many instances, very upset with the lockdown orders. Um, places like New York City, um, and New Jersey, they've been ravished, ravaged by the um, Carol Baskins virus. They have not been able to recover. They've had a lot of, of people who've come down with the virus. Many of their hospitals have been inundated. But that doesn't translate to rural counties across the country, and it certainly does not extend to many states 
where basically the same lockdown orders and the same policies have gone into place and millions of people have been thrown out of work. Mm-hmm. So you saw the first protest happening actually in, in North Carolina, uh, in Raleigh, right near the Capitol. And then we saw some things in Michigan, some things in Wisconsin. We're seeing it pop up more and more in Ohio and many, many, many other places. And this is, I, I would argue, uh, economic frustration. People are not able to work. People are losing jobs. They are told that they need to close their businesses or they're not able to work for an indiscriminate amount of time. They're not sure. They're not able to put food on the table. It's impossible to try to get your unemployment benefits. Nobody picks up. I mean, naturally, people are upset. Right, David? Isn't that what you you would kind of feel if you were in that situation? Yeah. So I have an interesting take on this because it's one of those things where it really does depend. I mean, if you're in a rural community that isn't seeing um, virus exposure like New York City, I can definitely understand the frustration of, well, why are we basically shutting down the local economy um, in advance of any serious uh, issues or problems? My one issue with the protests, though, is if you are going to protest the lockdowns and shutdowns you have to do it in a responsible manner and you have to do it in a way in which you're actually giving yourself distance from other people and um and wearing the appropriate uh let's say face masks um or or whatever you're wearing and the reason i say that is because if if you want to be taken seriously you have to show that you can act in a responsible manner. And so when you see these large crowds and nobody's wearing face masks and everyone is like almost shoulder to shoulder, um, I think that really discredits some legitimate arguments to have a different approach in their area because the the people who are in favor of the lockdowns and the shutdowns will just point at them and say, see, they can't, they can't even follow the rules. Um, or they can't even keep a safe distance from each other now. This is exactly why we need to have the mm-hmm. these draconian measures. And so, um, if you're a protester, well, I, would, I would disagree with you. I would disagree with you on on that point, David. And okay. uh, we don't often disagree. I would say there, um, the main issue being, oh, you know, they're not distancing or they're not wearing masks or something like that. I mean, the more and more that we're learning about this and we're reading the numbers and. It's just true that in some places you're not having the type of exposure that you have in others or you're not having the same amount of sickness. Yeah. Um, you know, are all of these people who showed up at X or Y protests going to get sick? I'm not sure. Um, of course, I'm not out there myself uh, protesting. I'm not in an area where that's happening because it's a very obedient country here. Um, but it's very different in the, in the States. And I don't know if, you know, the the reporting on this has been very interesting because people would like to make this out to be a Tea Party type thing, a rebellion against government and all, when really it is, it's just, it depends which world you live in. You know, if you're in the world where you can work from home and you're pretty comfortable and the only major convenience is you can't go to your office and uh, you're not going to your local Starbucks anymore, you know, that's very different from now you have absolutely no income. You don't even know how you're going to pay the mortgage next month. You don't know how you're going to pay any of your bills. It's, it's a total, totally different kind of disconnect. And, of course, you have that between big cities and rural areas. You know, I think everything that we've gotten from government has been incredibly confusing. I mean, that was our, our episode a, a few weeks back about whether to mask or not to mask. 
and we've gotten so much contradictory information. I don't know if you saw this. There's a great TikTok video of a woman who's doing a press conference <laughs> that's like, your government during Corona, uh, Carol Baskin's virus. And she she's, <laughs> she gives kind of the opening and uh, says, oh, you know, this you're supposed to stay indoors, except when you need to go outside. <laughs> and you're allowed to go outside, but you need to stay indoors. And all, all shops are closed, except all stores are open, only at certain times. And only certain people can get, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, golden. It's a word salad of all of the recommendations and then backtracks um, from public health, health officials. I think we've seen that at, like, every level where, yeah. I mean, uh, the Trump purports that some some drug works his chief medical person says that it doesn't originally they say don't wear masks now they're saying do wear masks then you have jurisdiction saying you have to wear masks they're ripping people off of public buses who don't have masks it's like okay well that's a that's taking things really far in terms of the extreme but Mm. um, real quick on the protests i do have one one additional point there so I can t- I totally understand the frustration. I sympathize with the irritation, but if you're looking at this from an optics perspective, if anyone does get sick from one of those protests, the argument is over and they've lost. And that's why No, I I don't think so. I don't think so because w- w- that w- basically you don't do protest on other people's terms. You don't do protest based on you know trying to uh, win the framing of another point of view of of people who are taking you know the wrong approach or who are in power. You're not always trying to do that. If that were the case, we would just write petitions and government official uh, government officials would never answer them, right? So it has to be out of the norm. So I don't. Again, I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's a yeah. huge indictment. I do think it is effective in hell. Look, we're talking about it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if it's just like a, a lot of masked people that are, you know, st- outside of some state capital in Madison or something, it's a bit different from like huge crowds of people that are openly defying the order. Yeah, with some risk. But at the same time, if not as many people get sick or if all of these people then become immune. Yeah, who knows? I think well, there's I- a... Yeah, I posit this question for you. Would it then be better in terms of civil disobedience? Would real civil disobedience in this instance be for those businesses to just stay open? Could be, and there are instances where people are doing that, and uh, there are instances where people have been cited and have gotten tickets, and you know they can easily put. I mean, I know that in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there they have this like incredibly strange waiver process. So that you just have like really weird companies that are able to continue on, mostly those connected to people in power, of course. But mm-hmm. you know, the whole reason I bring this up is it's about the protests, it's about their origin, it's about you know how all this was sparked. And there's a an article in the New York Times that this is the one that really ground my gears. Yeah, ground my gears. <laughs> um, so this one um, is about the origin of the protests and. Essentially, the picture that they're painting is, you know, this is this all started from shadowy billionaires. It's all the elites, the people behind the scenes. You know, these are not real protesters. They're only there because billionaires have pushed them to do it. Let me find the headline here, David. I've, I've got a couple tweet storms on this. Uh, let's see here. New York Times. There we go. Who's behind the reopen protests? 
they're anything but spontaneous. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to play a clip very okay. quickly yep. that is from the New York Times podcast that gives an intro into this and sounds so sinister. Paul, uh, yesterday we started to uh, see some tweets like from the president of the United States. Liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, all in capital letters. So this is the president openly encouraging these protests. He's taken himself right to the front of the line. Right. It's around this point that I started to look at this and think this has the makings of of a movement. Precisely. It's got everything that we've come to see in any modern political movement. It's crowds outside of state houses. It's the same sort of signage. It's, it's a protest movement that's come together very, very fast and getting a lot of tension. And we start wondering, my colleague Ken Vogel and I, like, what's behind this movement's they take some organization. They take getting the word out to people and negotiating with the authorities on the street about you know where the protesters can be, especially in these new conditions. So we start wondering, how is this all coming together? Certainly a movement, but all movements have organizational structures. What's going on here? And what did you find? Well, as we often find, we, it was complicated. You don't say. <laughs> it involved some familiar conservative activist groups playing major roles behind the scenes. Some of the conservative donors who we followed over the years were involved behind the scenes. There were many tentacles from Washington leading into these various state protests, mm. basically driven by people whose main concern probably isn't solely whether you can go to the store tomorrow and buy some grass seed. All right, I'll pause it real quick. Do you know what he means by the grass seed? Yeah, but that was that was Michigan, wasn't it, where um, they were deeming what is and isn't essential, and then for some reason, like, gardening supplies fell in the non-essential category, and so it was illegal yeah. to buy, like, flower seed or gardening tools and all sorts of things. Yes, yeah, so, and for a moment of humor, I'll play the clip. Um, essentially, the social distancing warriors have been... Um, uh, calling this guy out, uh, th I think this is on Fox or something, this guy's talking about lawn fertilizer, <laughs> and they're calling him the crying fertilizer guy. I can't go between those houses. You can't buy paint. You can't buy lawn, you can't buy lawn fertilizer or grass seed or whatever. I mean, come on. All statewide? Really? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, yeah, that's so pretty funny. I mean, Okay, so, yeah, all right, that's the setup. Let me yeah. give you the punch of okay. the New York Times thing. And it's how this whole story came about. It's the origin of this story. It's something that we have dealt with as activists, as consumer advocates. This is how these stories really, really happen. So this is uh, continuing that interview. Then yeah. we get, you know, the kind of thing that happens sometimes that you're very happy when it happens as a reporter is I got a kind of out of the blue call from a progressive group called True North. Mm -hmm. And they found, hey, if we're live, I'm going to. Right. Out of the blue, this progressive group that I have no connection to calls me up and points me to a YouTube clip. I mean, come on. So transparent. I mean, this it's, is, it's pretty weak ugh. as well. It's just like, it, it's the same stale, like, even if you think that these protesters are wrong, which... I, I fall in that gray zone. I know you and I maybe disagree a little bit, but even if you think that they're dead wrong... 
I, it's such a silly, like, to assume that they're not acting on their own or to assume that they're not, that these people aren't capable of, like, actually being passionate about something without being poked and prodded from someone else pulling the strings is, it just denies, like, the autonomy of these people. And, look, I will, <laughs> the best part is, is that if someone was pulling the strings for, lawn fertilizer guy i can guarantee you he'd give a better answer than lawn fertilizer <laughs> can't buy paint can't buy fertilizer yeah and the the clip of the of the new york times show what they'd play is a clip of stephen moore uh who is an yes. economist he's been at you know various conservative organizations uh, yep. you probably have met him a few times i have actually um, met him quite a few times um uh, disagree with him a lo- on a lot of different things but he is generally a a very interesting person to talk to oh well um new york times think he's uh he's the the guy pulling all the strings do you want to hear this oh let's hear it start talking how's that a fascinating little clip from youtube we can talk public policy and drink at the same time a tiny youtube show there are 300 views on this thing we decided to call up our old friend steve moore who's who's at home steve how are you so did the Gazette take you back? No, no. And it's Stephen Moore, a longtime conservative activist. My my wife says I'm a metrosexual because I'm <laughs> because I'm drinking a wine spritzer. Oh my! God. A one-time potential nominee for President Trump to the Fed board, and a close sort of economic advisor to Trump from the outside. Mm-hmm. If we don't open the economy by May first, so basically they play the clip of Steve Moore and they say that. He's the genesis of all of this because he mentions how he's working with people in Wisconsin, you know, to maybe get one or two started after there have already been like 25 protests around the country. This is the New York Times report. Yeah, and they're totally inflating the power of Steve Moore. I mean, he he has influence in some ways, but he is not um, he is not this puppet master that they make him out to be. It's a strange world out there. Yeah, it's just crazy. I'm, that really got my goat. You, you can listen to the full clip. And Stephen Moore is, you know, what he's saying is uh, he's responding to a lot of the protests that were happening. He said, oh, yeah, you know, we're we're trying to work on this stuff, you know, in Wisconsin. There are some people that, you know, might be interested in supporting it. It's like, really? After there's already been 25 or 30 of these, he's the puppet master? This is just shameful. This is what is in the New York Times. Um, forgive me. I'll get off my pedestal. Um, <laughs> David, what do you, what are you uh, what are you looking at over on uh, home desk? Over yeah, there in so China? I have um, I have another clip that that I want to uh, get to um, from our uh, our friend, and I say that ironically, uh, AOC and her comments about what people should do when the economy reopens and I'll leave the the build up for the clip at that and we can discuss it afterwards because she certainly said a lot of silly things uh this might be the silliest um so Jamie will you play the AOC clip there's a lot that we could be doing right now but ultimately the I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society you know only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 
70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security. And Let's see Paul Allen's card. Wow. <laughs> so she's basically calling for like a general workers strike um, in regards to when these restrictions end, which to me just feeds this narrative that the Democrats are so painfully disconnected from, if we want to call it middle America or, or whatever catch-all term you use. I mean, there are 26 million Americans who have filed jobless claims. You have people lined up for three, four hours at a time in counties like uh, Dade County in Miami um, for food banks because they are actually not able to uh, put food on the table. And you're somehow going to get these people to not go back to work when things reopen and not be able to earn a living and not be able to put food on the table. It's just, it, it strikes me as so, um, and I'm not one to jump into like this populist trap of, ooh, the elitists and the swamp and people in D.C. and the Beltway and all of those other buzzwords, but this really does feel like just someone who is sitting at home, sitting on their obviously quite large uh, congressional salary, um, fairly comfortable, life doesn't really change for, for AOC, and yet at the same time you have um, verging on 30 million Americans who are jobless, um, and who want to get back to work and then overlay that with the conversation we just had about this overall restlessness of people who want, who are actively protesting to say we want to go back to work. It just seems like such a silly comment to make. Um, and it's really just trying to use the crisis to say, well, don't go back to work until we get a $15 minimum wage. And it's like, well, okay, people who, one, there aren't going to be jobs for you if that's the case. A lot of these firms are uh, now in the red and, and flirting with bankruptcy. Um, a, a massive increase of 20 to 30% in terms of labor costs is just going to drive a lot of these businesses under, and that would be the final nail in the coffin. Um, so just a really ridiculous comment from her, really disconnected, which is, I mean, to me, seems so silly for someone who has, like, some serious progressive blue-collar roots in terms of, like, being a bartender and and holding down these jobs. It's it's almost like she's um, she's succumbed to the Beltway uh, in that respect um, since leaving uh, Brooklyn and, and being in D.C. So, um, yeah, just a really, really silly thing for her to say in the context of everything that's going on. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal about the lucky 37%, and that is the estimation of people who, um, throughout all of this, are still able to get their work done from home. Yeah. Um, that, that's the, the kind of estimate. So you, you still have 60% of the working population that essentially is not doing anything right now. They're hunkered down in their homes. They're not able to work. Uh, do you think that their first instinct is to uh, go back and start a revolution? The revolution will not be televised. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> That's insanity think so. on her part. I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I think you 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 had a very well, good response there. 
Yeah, and and the problem is is that there is an alternative to her which is also just as insane. Um, so I put her on the populist left, and then someone on the populist right, like Charlie Kirk, who is the head of Turning Point USA, which is a very pro-Trump populisty um, student organization, uh, tweets that Americans should boycott all products made in China, um, which gets a lot of traction because there's a lot of heat on on China right now, um, specifically the, the Communist Party and the government. But what people on the populist right don't realize is that by boycotting all products from China, all you're doing is punishing ordinary Chinese people for the crimes of a government that they didn't choose for themselves. They didn't choose to have the Communist Party in power. This is forced upon them. And yes, you have this evil entity that is doing all sorts of terrible things, but punishing uh, ordinary Chinese people on top of having, for them, on top of having to live under communist rule in China just seems so cruel and so antithetical to the ideas of liberty and freedom. It's like, oh, it's terrible that these people have to live under communism. Well, let's really stick yeah. it to them, uh, even though and, it's not their fault. Take, yeah, and to take, and it is true that if, you know, you do that, then most companies just shift their supply chains to, like, Vietnam or Philippines or whatever. And the other point is, you know, there's a lot of companies that just do get their products sourced in China, whether it be for the raw materials or for the labor you know, it is very integral, and a lot of things that we're wearing or we have in our homes, and I, we obviously have talked about how in some items it needs to be questioned, specifically when it comes to, you know, very uh, high-precision electronic equipment like your cell yeah. phone and all your data yeah. and your servers. Um, but this kind of attitude of just like, you know what, globalization was fun while it lasted. Let's just pull the plug. It's just a terrible idea. Um, well, that's... It's just not a way that we can get things restarted. I think people deserve to be skeptical, and if people want to shift uh, their supply chain and start to make everything in the U.S., that's going to be great, but prices are going to go up. Yes, exactly. And I, so I think it's it's totally reasonable to have conversations about things like Huawei and national security concerns and their connection to the Chinese Communist Party. Totally legitimate. But when we're talking about the benefits like it, it it's it just irks me so much that a guy like Charlie Kirk can rail now against globalization completely forgetting that in human history nothing has lifted more people out of poverty on a global scale uh, or as a percentage of the population since man versus domesticated animals well, uh, no, I think you're wrong because it's Trump. Trump has uh, has lifted more people out of poverty, according to Kirk. Yeah, <laughs> yes. That's what he would say. I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. And so th this is what really drives my, like, drives my anger at the current political situation in the U.S. is that you have this populist right who are just saying nonsensical things that are antithetical to what it's supposed to be or supposed to mean to be a conservative. And then you have progressive populists who are just saying, well, why, why should anybody go back to work? Everybody can live off the government. Yeah. And it's like, well, where does the government get its money from? It gets its money from people working. So, oh, whoops. 
Yeah. And there, there have been um, some interesting articles. There's one from CNBC about um, how the unemployment system is working out. And in many circumstances, you actually do have unemployed workers who are receiving not only their full paycheck or the amount of their full paycheck, but actually in a bonus of anywhere between six and $800 more mm-hmm. than their normal bill. And uh, there was one circumstance, where's this article from, where a woman was able to get a loan, um, a, a business owner, and uh, she was so happy she got the loan. She did all the paperwork. She's like, finally, guys, we can go back to work. It's okay. We're an essential business. It's fine. And then she did a, a sort of telephone call with all of her workers, and they were pissed. They're like, what? Yeah. We got to go back to work? I mean, we're making more money now. And yeah. like, no, 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 but we can open back up our business. I, we have this loan now. They're like, yeah, but we're making more money not working. <laughs> yeah. So there's a... And again, that's not going to be the case for everyone. And um, most of these people are, are essentially in the very low income bracket. So I think they should get everything they can get. But Of course, of course. But yeah, there's yeah, the example but... in, in Oregon where um, uh, where I think the, the, uh, the aid package, both federal and state, was an additional $400 a week and brought, um, like if you're, if you call it your salary... Um, being your aid package, it was just over a thousand dollars a week. So you're looking at over fifty grand a year uh, if you annualize that um, to not work. And so for jobs that make less than that, which obviously there are lots, fast food jobs and line cooks and things like that, um, a lot of those folks basically just said, "Well, I'd like to stay unemployed, please," um, which is not a good thing. That is a very bad thing to have. Where you incentivize, um, you incentivize folks to not basically apply their productive labor to anything. Um, so it could create a very ugly situation where you have, um, if this were widespread, which it isn't right now, but if it were to expand and be widespread, or in other countries maybe where aid packages are too generous, you actually run the risk of incentivizing people not to go back to work. Um, and so the only way to get them back to work is to rip the, the bandaid off and just take away these benefits. And then that causes a fairly ugly situation because people come dependent and reliant and you create a dependency trap of some sort. Um, so it's one of those things. And I know that you and I talk about this in terms of all public policy. There's the seen and the unseen while that we see that they want to help people, but the unseen is the reaction or the chain reaction that that causes in terms of the the labor market and and getting people back to work so um, yeah and they have to be... go out and start revolution well yeah yeah well i mean maybe maybe that's what aoc is getting at she's like well if you're gonna make 50 grand a year just don't go to work and while you keep cashing those checks we can fight the revolution it's like well eventually those checks are going to run out or you're going to just have to print the money to keep up and that's going to completely devalue it and, and inflate it and um, it's that's an ugly situation in and of itself, but mm. uh, well, yeah, be careful it, that you're not planning your protest on small YouTube shows. Yes, yes. If, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to plot uh, to to manip- to manipulate protests that are already happening um, across state lines, make sure you don't mention it on a YouTube program with 300 views. 
that's the best way to do it because otherwise because you'd be in jail. That's true. Well, David, <laughs> uh, it's been a great program. Um, I think you know we, we started off with a bang. Great interview, uh, Jerry Buting, making a murderer fame. It was great to have him on the program. Um, pretty good deconstruction of everything that was going on. Uh, pleasure to be on the mic with you, good sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great interview, a great show. Uh, we'll chat with you next week. And uh, again, follow us both on Twitter. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, give us comments and feedback, only if they're nice. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Until then. <laughs>